Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, on the podcast today in my home is um, Drew Young. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Thanks for having me. Drew has been on the podcast two other times. Um, he's an LDS author, a married father of one. Um, episode 276 is his story as an early release missionary and a book that he wrote about that. And episode 325 are thoughts about solving porn use. So Drew is somebody that has been willing to talk and continues to talk about more tender subjects in LDS culture that need to be talked about. And so he has written a second book um, called, why don't you tell our listeners and yeah, your sure. second book? Stand guard at the door of your mind is what it's called. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and um, tell our listeners more about the timing of that book, if they can pre-order it now when the release is. Yeah. So it's, it's on Amazon for pre-order. It's really my, uh, when I was going through some, some dark times emotionally and, and spiritually and, and mentally, it was kind of my way to, to feed my soul. All the things in the book are things that I had researched, things from my journals, things that I learned from different motivational speakers and, uh, you know, different authors and things like that. And I, I wrote it all down and added my personal experience to it to help people with cultural dilemmas concerning pornography, mental health, suicide, bullying, and just trying to do my part to help rid the world of those things. And that's great. So I encourage our listeners to um, order that book. It's at Amazon. I believe the official release date is August 10th. And um, why don't you, before you get in these topics, for anybody that hasn't listened to your earlier podcast, just introduce yourself to us, your age, where you grew up, and just a little bit of your life story. Sure. So I'm 25 years old, currently live in Sandy, Utah with my wife and daughter, as you mentioned, um, and grew up in Connecticut, loved it, moved to Utah when I was 12, um, have been in Utah ever since. And as you mentioned, um, a big part of my story was kind of learning how to um, manage my life after coming home early from missionary service due to uh, mental health issues. and. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a wonderful journey to try and figure out how I can add my voice and my experience to those who are struggling. And as we learned in other episodes, you went through some really difficult times. Yeah, um, <laughs> in high school and coming home from your mission, and instead of just kind of locking those up in your life and moving forward, you've been one of these um, courageous people that is willing to talk about being bullied. Um, coming home early, some of these other topics of your mm -hmm. new book. Yeah. And I'm glad you do that because I think there's right now listeners just need somebody that's sort of been in their space mm. and can give them hope they can pull out of that space and there's better days. And as we talk on this podcast a lot, a minister service, you know, is authentic if, you know, he or she can lead someone out of the desert. I'm paraphrasing this quote, listeners, that <laughs> I've done a better job in the past, but it's basically the idea that Drew knows these deserts. And um, it sometimes takes someone that knows the deserts that he's going to talk about that can authentically lead other people out of them. It's one of the reasons I'm drawn to Elder Holland with his Broken Vessel talk when he vulnerably talked about his own uh, mental health at times, and it just made me love and respect him even more. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, tell us more just wherever you want to go. You could outline the chapters. You could go deep dive right now into one of the chapters, just wherever the Spirit's kind of telling you to go, Drew. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, well, as I mentioned, kind of the premise of the book covers different topics that our culture, our society kind of struggles with. Um, whether we ourselves struggle with it or we know someone that does, you know, it's it's universal in application concerning uh, what what we have challenges towards in our lives. And as I mentioned, I, I grew up in, in Connecticut. I, uh, the youngest of eight kids and my dad got a job when I was four years old that moved, you know, the family out to Connecticut and, um, from Utah. And so that's kind of where my, my story begins. I, I kind of paraphrase it when I tell people I have kind of two parts to my story. The first part is between the ages of, you know, four to 18. And then the second part is from ages 19 to where I am now. And, uh, the first part kind of covers the, the issues of 
of bullying and pornography. And then the second part covers a lot of my mental health, um, suicide, success versus failure, kind of those different topics that I've had to, to learn, as you mentioned, in the, in the deserts and the really dark places in my life. And uh, something that I've, I've recognized and noticed in my own life is that, you know, we, we always hear, you know, don't bully others. We always hear, you know, you know, don't, don't use your power to make others feel like you're, you know, challenging them or that you're being condescending. And, um, you know, we just, we don't like bullies. We hear that all the time. Don't be a bully. We don't like bullies yet. Um, at least in my own personal experience, I've never really had someone share with me a time when they got bullied or a time when they went through something like that. And it, it changed the way that they viewed others after it. Um, and so I wanted to be vulnerable with that part of my story. And that's one of what, one of the chapters highlights in my book is, is uh, the chapter is called what four years of being bullied taught me. And it highlights, you that's know, a powerful, <laughs> we just all stop right there. Listeners, um, four years yeah. of being bullied taught me. Yeah. Um, thank you for just being honest with that title. Uh, obviously that takes up me and listeners to, wow, this wasn't just a one-off time at a recess. This is four years. It may not have happened every day, but it was part of your life. Absolutely. I've learned when it's not happening every day, that probably the fear that it will continue mm. to happen, the anxiety it creates yeah. at the beginning of the day, even if nothing happens is part of being bullied. It's just being in that space for that long. Yeah. So keep going, Drew. <laughs> it's uh, it was, it was a, you know, it was the dark, one of the darkest times of my life. Um, and now I can look back with, you know, a lot more compassion and empathy. Uh, but obviously anyone who knows or has gone through it or has, you know, a child, a brother, a sister, grandson, anyone who knows someone who's being bullied, it's really difficult in the moment. It's hard to know what do you do as a parent? You know, it's hard to know what do you do as, you know, the victim of, of being bullied. And so I try to shed a little bit of light on that. Um, but, you know, where my story kind of starts in terms of the bullying was, so I grew up with, and I've mentioned on the podcast before, I grew up with a lot of separation anxiety. And we talked about kind of what that is, but it manifested itself in my own life through a lot of kind of homesickness, fear, and panic whenever I'd leave my mom. You know, whether that was going to preschool, whether that was going to second grade, it would kind of ebb and flow in my life. It would come back for a couple of months and, you know, then it would leave for a year or two and then it'd come back randomly. And, um, it was something that I never, it was something that I wanted to not be a part of me because it made, you know, creating, you know, friendships and going to school and stuff like that difficult at times, but it was never something that kids used against me to say that I was weak or that I, you know, you know, shouldn't be this way. I, I, you know, it was, it was something that was just kind of like, oh, you know, he's sad today and, you know, we're still his friend. And that's kind of why I, I mention a lot that I still consider Connecticut kind of my home because it was, it was where I went through difficult times, but I was never really judged for it. And I had a lot of friends and did a lot of fun things and never had the separation anxiety become so dire that it created emotional gaps in my life that led me down to, you know, you know, different coping mechanisms that weren't healthy in the long run. And so when I was 12, my, you know, my family, uh, my dad got another job, moved back from Connecticut to Utah. And, uh, that's where the, you know, the, the chapter gets its, its title, what four years of being bullied taught me. So we moved in, um, the beginning of May, 2008, and I was excited. You know, I, I, all my family, my extended family was in Utah, cousins, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Uh, we'd come out to Utah every other year to visit and um, sometimes every summer. And uh, I never had, you know, traumatic emotions associated with Utah. I thought that it was just a great place. And I was excited to make new friends and continue to, you know, just be a kid and have fun. And um I finished up sixth grade in Utah and what for about a month in school, I made a lot of friends, was doing a lot of fun things during the summer. Uh, and then I went to Lake Tahoe with some friends from Connecticut at the end of August of that year, 2008. 
And I came back on a Saturday and the following Monday, I was going to scout camp with kids in my ward. And uh, I just thought, okay, I'm going to scout camp, you know, busy summer. And uh, so we, we got up there on, on Monday and Monday evening, you know, everyone was kind of just roughhousing, you know, just scouts, whatever. And we all went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and my separation anxiety was back. And not like back, like, oh, I kind of feel weird. Like it was back. Like I was completely panicked. I was homesick. I was fearful, just went to bed without it, woke up with it. And that is where the bullying started, where these kids who I had gotten to know for a couple of months, um, but obviously not as well as my friends in Connecticut, who I literally grew up with. And they saw me in this extremely vulnerable state of, you know, just crying and not really knowing what was going on and um, not really being able to verbalize how I was feeling in a way that anyone could understand. But just being in a, a, a state of just fear and panic and sadness. And that's where it started. That's kind of where the the jumping off point was for four years of just almost indescribable, just awfulness in my life. But I, I try to tell it in a way that comes across as if, you know, if we do bullying in, in some instances can be preventable, but in other instances, you know, I think it's 70% of elementary school kids are bullied at some point in their lives, whether that's cyber bullying, whether that's, you know, in-person bullying. Um, and so more often than not, people are going to experience it. Uh, but for me, I never thought that I would go through it. Never thought that I was one who would be bullied, but it just it happened and it was there. And so that, that whole week of scout camp was the separation anxiety mixed with kids telling me, you know, why are you being such a crybaby? You know, come do the activities with us. Um, I actually share a pretty vulnerable story in the book of some of the kids uh, getting to, you know, telling me to suck it up and then hitting me in the private parts. And that was like, that was the first real, like, no, you don't do that to people. And I never thought that you do that to people. And they did it to me. And I remember just sitting on the gravel next to like the ice cream shop at that scout camp, just like crying. And they had left, they just were like, they left me there. And, um, I just was in pain emotionally and physically. And I just kind of got up and walked back to the camp and tried to tell the leaders about it, tried to, tried to, like I said, verbalize how I was feeling, but it didn't do much. Uh, and so putting that scout camp aside, moving forward, uh, the separation anxiety got to such a rough point that I was, my parents decided to homeschool me for that year just because they, you know, I and they, you know, we just thought school isn't going to work right now and we need you to learn and we need you to educate yourself. And that ended up being one of the, I call it one of my major mistakes, um, even though, you know, I was like 12 and a half. But looking back, obviously, I don't wish it was different, but I completely would have if I knew what I know now, I would have said, no, you need to go to school because that's how you're going to get through this in a more effective way by just going to school and, you know, making it through whatever you need to go through. And you'll make other friends that are outside of your ward. So you don't have to always be bullied by the same kids and different things like that. But so I was homeschooled seventh, eighth and ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And that was because of seventh grade was because of the separation anxiety and then eighth and ninth grade was separation anxiety combined with the bullying, uh, just because it was it was so miserable for me to see those kids because every time I saw them I was verbally abused, physically punched, thrown on the ground, kicked. Uh, I was you know told I was fat. I was called four eyes. I wore glasses. You know I was told to go back to Connecticut. We don't want you here. Um, it's called retard and all these different things where 
that just destroyed me and my self-esteem, my self-confidence. And I would try to, you know, it even got to the point where I hated going to church. I hated church because I associated church with people who were mean like that, because that's what I knew. I knew that these kids who are in, you know, my deacons, teacher quorum, whatever, they're going to be mean to me today. And I don't want to go to church because churches has mean people in it. And so it really took a withdrawal from me to want to go to church because, you know, we always, I was taught growing up that church is a safe place. You know, church is a place where we feel um, protected and we feel loved and we feel nurtured. And it was the complete opposite for me. And to my dismay, to my shock, uh, I never once experienced external help from any leaders within any of the quorums um, or, you know, any real parental guidance or intervention. I was just kind of told if they call you retard, call them retard back. If they punch you, you punch them back, you know, just uh, almost show them physically that you can take it, that you can, you know, be the man that they're trying to make you into or something like that, you know, just like, that they're trying to make you into. <laughs> exactly. It just adds to your trauma. <laughs> yeah. And I talk about it in, in my story pretty extensively, but, you know, for one reason or another, I never felt that reciprocating in the bullying and the injustice would heal the issue. And so some people have told me, you know, you should have stepped up for yourself. You should have like been stronger. Some people have said, no, you did the right thing by not, you know, really trying to stand up for yourself. Um, and I don't really know what the, what the balance was. I just know what I did. And um, at the end of the day, when I was 16, you know, I'd been bullied for four years. This was pretty much a daily occurrence because I wanted to go out and make friends. So I'd try to hang out with these kids every day and I would just come back emotionally destroyed. But the next day I'd say, okay, maybe today will be different. So I try to go back out the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, but I would try to cope with these, um, emotions and I would try to cope with this lessened sense of self-worth by viewing pornography. That's kind of where the pornography came in, where I felt like I don't have any connection with anybody. I don't feel needed. I don't feel wanted. Um, so I'm going to turn to this platform that makes me feel those things, however short timed it may be. And so <clears throat> I view pornography, you know, almost on a daily basis for <clears throat> five, 10 minutes, whatever it was, because it was the one part of my day where I felt that sense of connection. And looking back now, obviously it, <clears throat> it wasn't connection. It was just momentary pleasure that my brain saw as connection and said, okay, you're, you know, you got your fill, move on. Uh, and that's kind of where the story goes until I was 16. So it was, a. Uh, will get to the lessons learned in a little bit. That's kind of the gist of it thus far. Every time you come and do a podcast, Drew, my heart just kind of gets big and um, because your courage to talk about this. And I, I just admire you that you didn't lock this up inside of you and said, that was the past. I'm in a different place now. I'm not going to talk about this. It's, it takes a lot of courage to talk about all the things you're talking about. Mm, thank you. I think it's a great, strain, great sign of strength. Um, it's a character attribute we don't value enough in males. Maybe females mm. are used to being a little more vulnerable because their mm. culture allows it. But I think being vulnerable and talking about it heals and brings hope to others that are on that. I, I hope you caught listeners that you knew exactly where you were. You were sitting on gravel by an ice cream thing. Mm -hmm. That visual imagery is permanently embedded in your brain. I don't know if you can still see the color of the gravel. Oh, yeah. The color of the ice cream. <laughs> it's there. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's a long time ago. And for that to be permanently embedded in your brain, to me, just as a sign of the trauma you experienced. Mm. And that there were not people, adults in your life, that were safe to sort of deal with that. Yeah. 
Um, talk about what you wish adults did for you and what kind of training we gave adults so that they would be allies to you and, and be on your side. Yeah. And this is something that I've given a lot of thought to myself because for me, it was natural to ask for help when I was kind of going through these tough times. Uh, you know, obviously for the first month or two, I just thought, oh, this is just a phase, you know, this will pass. This isn't how, you know, kids treat each other. Kids are supposed to be nice to each other. And so I thought, oh, these are just kind of like anomalies, just kind of a one-time thing. But when it started becoming more severe, that's where I saw it, like intervention from parents and, and leaders. Cause the leaders were, I mean, in a sense, the kids would wait till the leaders went around the corner and then they'd punch me or hit me or call me names, whatever. But you know, the, the leaders saw it sometimes, uh, and yet there was never intervention in the way that would have put an end to the problem. And even from my parents, even though I knew that they loved me and cared about me, there was never intervention that, that got to the point where they, they called somebody or they did something. It was always just the kind of, you know, stand up for yourself. Don't let them treat you that way and stuff that sounded great, but wasn't actually effective. And so for leaders and and parents, it all comes down to just being self-aware enough to know who is under your stewardship. And, you know, whether that's your own child, whether that's, um, you know, someone in in your quorum or someone in your your group or your class, if you're a teacher or something like that, you got to know your your students, you got to know your kids, you got to know your quorum members. And you need to be aware of what's going on inside of the realm, the environment that you're, that you're in. Because when it comes down to a, a 12 or 13 year old, or sometimes even younger, they don't have all the emotional skills that you have. They don't have all of the, the verbal skills or the physical skills that you have. And they don't really know how to handle situations like that, which is why I turned to pornography because I didn't know any other way to cope with it. I didn't know that this was something that could be stopped. I just thought it'll go until either I move or they move or something happens. And so for, for those who are in a stewardship role and that maybe have an idea that something is happening or maybe see something, you just got to go over to the, the kid and create a safe place for them to talk about it. And not a safe place as in you sit them down, you say, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay, great. Because most kids will just say, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I don't want to bring adults into the situation because that could make it worse or the bullying could, you know, get stronger or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's the adult's responsibility to watch out for people that are, you know, more vulnerable than they are. And so whether that means, you know, just having a better eye on things, whether that means, you know, standing up the first day of class or the first day of church or, you know, the first um, lesson or something and saying, you know what, we're going to have a vulnerable conversation today. There, you know, we all know kids, we all know people who, you know, are bullied or that experience bullying. And that's not going to be tolerated here because this is a this is going to be a safe place. This is going to be a, pl- a place where you look forward to coming to every day, every week, every month, et cetera. And if I see that, there's going to be consequences because you may think to yourself, oh, we're just having fun. We're just being kids. We're just pushing each other around. But you have no idea how that other person sees it. You know, you have no idea how the person on the reciprocating end of your words or your actions perceives what you're trying to do. And so that's not going to be tolerated. And you guys can go play football. You guys can go wrestle. You can do whatever you want to do. But in this class or in this environment, we're going to be kind to each other. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to uplift each other. And, you know, I think that that can go a long way because most of the time I was never taught a lesson growing up in deacons, teachers, priest quorum, and, you know, in any school setting. I was never once taught, you know, a lesson that was vulnerable and straightforward about not bullying others. It was either just, you know, you know, we're not mean to each other here and then moving on. You know, there was nothing that was really effective or powerful to those who um, 
we're going to be in that vulnerable state. And so I would just say to be, be open, be honest about it with people under your stewardship. And if someone comes to you, show an actual interest, make sure that they know that you are on their side, that if something happens that you need to put a stop to, it will stop because that can provide a safe place for a lot of kids. And, you know, my extent of it to the pornography was, you know, obviously the pornography wasn't something that was, you know, um, kind of a, a soft withdrawal. It wasn't something that was just kind of like, eh, it's not that bad. Um, a lot of kids get to the point where they take their own life, you know, or they overdose on drugs or they, they do something that has repercussions that can end with a lot of pain for a lot of people. And so you, you never know what, you know, happens because of unkindness or bullying. And so just to, to have that relationship with the kids or with the neighbors or something where you can just be aware and go over and ask them can make a big difference. To talk about, have you reconciled with any of these guys um, and, or not? And if just talk about, and I'm, I'm not implying you need to. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes in toxic relationships, the best thing is just to not have relationships with people that are toxic in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, including leaders, if leaders you feel that way, just talk a little bit about any relationship you have with any of these people at this point in your life. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, so when I was 16, we ended up moving away from that neighborhood, that ward, that area. And so kind of from that point on, I distanced myself em- emotionally as well as physically from these people. And I think that's a sign of strength. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't plotting their doom in my bedroom or, you know, going to go toilet paper, or egg their car or their house or something. I was just kind of like, thank goodness I'm away from that scenario. Um, and so, you know, one of the kids, um, so there were, there were about, I'd say between five or 10 kids at any given time that were actively treating me unkindly. Um, and one of them actually quite sadly died by suicide. Um, he was going through stuff that nobody knew about and taking it out on others. And then one day he was gone. Um, and I actually went to his funeral with another friend and, you know, just kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you, you know, you felt this way and no one knew and um, just kind of paid my respects and, and moved forward. And um, there was another kid who, who tried to take his own life and didn't succeed, but kind of had some pretty strong physical repercussions from that. And um, there are some other kids who have gone on to serve missions and get married and have kids like nothing, you know, ever happened. And uh, to this day, I, I don't hold any grudges to this day. I don't wish ill on any of them. Um, and to this day, I don't need to see any of them ever again. Um, and to this day, none of them have ever reached out to me with an apology, um, or, Hey, I was thinking about, you know, what I did when I was younger, did that affect you? You know, I've never heard any of that and I don't expect to, or need to, I've just kind of put up a big boundary um, that has basically said, I'm not going to tolerate this in my life anymore. Um, if I see it being done to someone else, I'm going to step up immediately. If it's being done to me, I'm going to step up immediately. Um, and that's kind of just where my, my point of view is now in life. A lot of great principles there. Um, if I'm going to ask you a few questions, if one of um, those friends heard this podcast and wanted to reach out, would that be a good idea or a bad idea? And it's maybe you answering that question. There may be people listening that have hurt others that have been bullies and maybe not your direct bully, but just yeah. others and wondering, you know, is it best for me to just let it be and move forward? Or would it be, would it be healing for the person I bullied to actually reach out and apologize? And mm-hmm. I would guess 
everybody's it's going to be a different yeah. situation for everybody. But any general advice just from your perspective when you think about yeah, would it be helpful or not helpful? That's a great thought. So something that I've learned about forgiveness is that it's it's more about it's more about you being the forgiver than the person asking for forgiveness, if that makes sense. It does. So we're the ones that hold the key. And when we choose to forgive others, we're in a sense unlocking ourselves from the jail from the inside. And so I've never been one to, of course, I've experienced, I've felt the pain and the trauma from that, you know, lasted years in my life. But it, it, would, it never got to the point where I just wanted bad things to happen to them. But that being said, there may be some listening to this podcast who experienced, you know, far worse bullying than me or, you know, not as bad bullying than me, but they, they themselves felt like they had years of their life taken from them or something like that. And they may hold on to it, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later. And coming from someone who has personal experience, I can't just say, you know, forgive and forget, because that shows an insane lack of compassion for those who have been through it. But what can I, I can say is if you're still holding on to those feelings of, you know, rage or just angst or, you know, just anger towards people who treated you unfairly, however long ago it may have been, but just open up the possibility for forgiveness. You don't have to forgive today. But just allow yourself to think about it in a way where it's a possibility. Because one day you may listen to something or read something or have a conversation with somebody and it may just click in your brain like it's time now. And everyone's time to forgive is different. But if someone is listening to this who has bullied somebody and thinks to themselves, oh, maybe I should reach out and, and try and make amends, you can, of course, you can do that the way that the person responds is going to be up to them. So if you, if you reach out to someone you bullied and you, you know, and vulnerability say, I'm really sorry for what I did. And I recognize that it's wrong. And, you know, I'm sorry that it's five or 10 years later, but I just had to call you or text you and say, I, I apologize. If the person who receives that text or that call says, I don't want to talk to you, you know, don't call this number ever again, then you got it off your chest and you did the right thing for you. And you should move on if they, if they respond, you know, kindly and say, thank you so much for calling. That means so much to me. Then you just created a friendship that may last for years to come and you bridge that gap. So just going back to that, open up the possibility for forgiveness if you've been treated unfairly or unkindly. And then if you happen to reach out to somebody and, and they accept it, great. If they don't, then you did your part to, to take care of what you needed to these are great off-the-cuff, on-the-fly <laughs> answers, Drew. And it's one of your gifts is um, answering complex questions with principles that allow people to process that the best way for them. Hmm. I think if you're the bully and someone responds where they don't want to talk to you, don't make it about you and that now you've been a victim. You've got to not do that. It's still about the person that you... Um, were unkind to you bullied and you've got to keep that in perspective that that person is creating a boundary and you need to honor that boundary and mm -hmm. not somehow turn this now that you're the victim here. Mm -hmm. Keep the big picture in place of what you're trying to do here. And you're trying to repent and not mm -hmm. because, not because it's helping you. It probably would help you, but I think the heart you need to have is I actually want to lift somebody's burden that I created tremendous burden. I'm coming this from a place of love mm -hmm to help somebody else. Um, and I think messages are the best way to sort of open the door to introduction because then the person who's been bullied can kind of process that. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it's maybe very triggering for them to see your name on their phone or in a DM or mm -hmm. um, however you want to reach out to them. And it may just take some time, but it is possible. And Drew actually put his hands together to visualize um, what could happen in these relationships? Because sometimes these relationships that have so much pain, if you can get through that and heal them, they often, the vulnerability of going through that creates a really wonderful relationship going forward and some of the most healing relationships for both parties. Again, 
Absolutely. Um, but it's back to if it's a toxic relationship, the person that's been bullied needs to feel permission mm-hmm. and they don't that to to separate themselves from the bully. That's not a sign of weakness. That's not a sign of not living the gospel. It's not the sign of not being Christ-like. It's just a sign of sur- a way you survive. Mm-hmm. And I think your heavenly parents are grateful when you do things to create boundaries from people in your life that are unhelpful to you in your life. Um, hurt people hurt people. So when you talked about this bully who ended up dying by suicide, you had some empathy for him mm-hmm. and you even went. And I think on some level you recognize that whatever was going on in his life, some sort of pain way down there was manifest towards you. And it doesn't excuse it, but I think we have to realize that um, if you've got a kid that's a bully or somebody in your quorum that's a bully or someone you know it's a bully, you know, there may be something deeper there that they need a therapist or a trusted adult or somebody to address. And that's going to help the kid in a long time and the people he, that kid is hurting. Mm-hmm. Now, some, I think of common enemy intimacy, that phrase from Brene Brown, common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. The bond we share is simply we hate the same people. The intimacy we experience is intense. It's, However, it's not a fuel for real connection. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing her quote, but so... It's possible some of the some of the bullying towards you is just all the other guys just enjoyed the connection they got. Oh, absolutely. And, and they weren't, and maybe not all of them had deep hurt. They just enjoyed connecting instead of connecting in a way to lift others. They were connecting in a way to bully you, yeah. and somehow that was creating a feeling of belonging for them. Mm-hmm. And that's not the higher, holier law that Christ <laughs> teaches. Um, and sometimes. You know, they're not coming from a position of hurt. Um, I love that you're honest. Any thoughts on that before we move on? No, I, I think that's great. I, uh, yeah, like you said, hurt people hurt people. It's one of the greatest, you know, phrases that I've come to recognize. And it doesn't excuse their behavior in the slightest. Uh, but what it does is it opens up for you the, like I was talking about earlier, the possibility to just kind of understand that you know, you look, you think about, you know, the savior and how he was bullied. And that's even, you know, that's, that's a weak word for what he experienced, but you know, the injustice and the unfairness and the cruelty that he experienced, he recognized that when he was on the cross and he said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you may think as a victim of, of, being bullied, you might think, oh, well, of course they know what they're, do, that they're doing. They're being mean to me. They're hitting me. They're verbally abusing me. And, you know, it can happen in a marriage. It can happen in a family. It can happen between siblings. It can happen in any, in any situation where there are people involved. Bullying can be an issue. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't, you can't change people. But what you can do is you yourself can understand there, there may be something deeper going on. There probably is. And it becomes your responsibility to recognize, you know, and this may take professional help from, you know, a licensed therapist or something, but it becomes your responsibility to recognize, okay, this is where I draw the line. And it can be difficult, especially within church settings, because we're always told, you know, families are forever. So if there's a, a situation where you're being bullied within a family, that can make it even more difficult because you may feel like you have to reconcile. You may have to be kind always. You may, you know, feel like, oh, I can't put up a boundary if it's, you know, my sister or my dad or my husband or my, my wife, whatever. But there comes a point where, you know, it becomes the responsibility of the person who's receiving the bullying to say, this is where I draw the line and, and there needs to be a boundary here. Or there needs to be professional intervention, or I need to tell somebody about this. And, you know, if I may, can I share a a personal experience? So um, someone very close to me has a a family member who we characterize as toxic in the sense of um, just very unkind, um, very self-centered at times, and just has a lot of hatred towards this particular person for whatever reason, we don't know the specifics, but it comes out and, you know, snark comments, it comes out in exclusion from, you know, activities, different things like that. And it really used to 
mess with the, the psyche, the emotions of the person who received or the person that I'm close to. But what this person has done is, is recognize that, you know what, as difficult as this may be and however indoctrinated I've been to the, you know, families are forever, there comes a point where my own mental health and my own mental safety takes precedence over, you know, this idea that I have to be with this person forever. And that's obviously a fine line that you have to walk. But this person has recognized that this is not a safe place for them. This relationship isn't a safe situation. And if this person wants to reconcile to them with an apology or something, then great. But if not, then it just needs to be, you know, there needs to be distance, both emotionally and physically, and there needs to be time to heal. And so I just wanted to add that in there just in case there's a family situation going on. I think sometimes I love that. And sometimes we look at scriptures and I like we turn the other cheek. I think that's symbolic of just trying to your best in a relationship. But if it's a toxic relationship, we need to do what Drew did. I, you know, Drew's reminding me of my past here. I, I don't, I don't want to make this podcast to me. I've mentioned a, a couple of times in this podcast, I've seen a therapist twice in my life. And one was serving as a YSA bishop. Um, when I just got emotionally drained and I just needed somebody to sort of deal with my emotional fatigue. And I think I've mentioned here that then she had incredible insights as I sometimes would take a YSA situation without a name to her and sort of my understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ plus her therapy insights often really helped me help a YSA. Um, I wish every bishop could um, have a therapist sort of walking with them or have be trained as a social worker um, because it certainly helped me. But um, I did see a therapist um, in elementary school and I was having a hard time fitting in and really connecting with my friend group. I went to Indian Hills in elementary school in Salt Lake City and Bonneville Junior High. And um, I wasn't being bullied like you. I enjoyed scout camp. I enjoyed um, church was a safe place for me. So I don't want to compare experiences. Mine but I, I was not fitting in with the group, and I was withdrawn. I've learned I'm a little bit of an introvert and enjoy being alone, and it's probably why my parents had me go to a therapist to understand why I was kind of separating myself from my friends. But then the point of this story is I want to tell you about Steve Jensen. I've never talked about Steve Jensen on the podcast. Steve was the coolest guy at Indian Hills and the coolest guy at Bonneville Junior High, and he knew I was struggling. And he was always in charge of picking the flag football team, and somehow he figured out I wasn't very big, but I had great hands. <laughs> and he and he just, and he would take me off to the side and help me learn to catch the football, and then he'd call me on his football team. Hmm. And I don't know of anybody that's had a bigger impact of my life hmm. through high school, adults are really helpful, but Steve Jensen, the coolest guy, and it wasn't very complicated what he did. He just, he just saw me mm. and saw somebody that was just a little bit on the fringe and found something that I could do and just felt me, helped me feel included. And I didn't, you know, he, he saved me in so many ways. Mm. And be the Steve Jensen, teach your kids to be the Steve Jensen mm. He's a dentist here in Salt Lake. If any of you know him, please tell him how much I appreciate him and all he's done for me. And I'll never know what he did for me in those years. Um, talk about church. And here you're honest with church became this non-safe place for you. Mm. How did you not lose your testimony to church? And why did you then, you know, find a way to stay in the church when you're having these difficult experiences? Mm. Well, I also want to echo gratitude to Steve Jensen for what he did for you. It's, yeah, the, the impact is you, you don't even recognize what it was, but you knew that what he did for you was incalculable. So kudos to Steve. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, church was tough. I, uh, I don't really know what the deciding factor was in, in me you know, not outright rebelling or, you know, doing something that, you know, more permanently revoked my testimony or something like that. Uh, but I really, 
even though I was viewing pornography during that time, I recognized that God still loved me and that even though members of the church weren't represented who he was, he still loved me, he still cared about me, and that he would make it right eventually. And How did you learn everything you just said? I don't know. <laughs> I just kind of... I just kind of felt it inside. Um, and it was something that I, that even growing up has always been a part of me where even when I was, you know, viewing pornography or doing other things that were detrimental to my emotional and, and psychological and spiritual health, I would always turn to God after and just say, I'm sorry, I recognize that I did something wrong. And I'm going to try and stop or I'm going to try and do something differently. And so I wasn't, it was never my intention to actively rebel against God, even though I wasn't doing necessarily the things that I knew would make him um, happy or, you know, proud. But at the end of the day, I always just kind of went back to him. And I think I learned that because I recognized that adults and other people around me, kids my age, uh, they couldn't do what I needed them to do to take care of me um, or help me feel safe. And so I would retreat to that spiritual space that helped me feel safe, even for a moment. And looking back now, the beauty of perspective is, you know, 13 years later in my life, I knew that God wanted to take me out of that situation. He didn't like seeing me there. He didn't like seeing me being hurt like that daily. But he knew that, you know, 13 years later that I'd have these experiences to share and be able to help others. And I thank him for that. And I never thought that I would thank him for that or be grateful for what I went through. But I still remember um, when I was 16, The uh, it was the end of the day just came back from junior year of high school uh, and went upstairs to my, to my bathroom and I closed the door and I looked in the mirror and I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but it was the turning point in my life uh, that I still remember clearly. And I, I looked in the mirror and I said, I will try to never be unkind to people because I never want someone to feel the way I felt. And from 16 to now, I've kept that one of the strongest mottos in my life where I've never intentionally tried to be mean to anybody. Um, and of course, there's been times where I may have, you know, been unkind in their eyes and I tried to, to recognize that and apologize. But that's why the chapter is what four years of being bullied taught me because the end of the chapter comes back to, I never want anyone to feel the way I felt. So I'm going to try and treat people with kindness. Uh, and so going back to the question that you asked about church was, I just trusted in God that he would help me through one way or another. And my testimony has nothing to do with, people around me. Um, at the end of the day, it's all about your relationship with God and Jesus. That really matters. And so, you know, again, you need to recognize and be aware of if you need to get yourself out of the situation. But being with Jesus, being with God is what helped me make it through and learn the lessons I needed to. Um. I'd love the way you navigated that. I call it church-generated pain or where the church becomes unsafe and your ability to separate the institutional church, the people, your quorum from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And often, um, we don't really teach that, but often Latter-day Saints are able to stay in the church, are able to separate those two, and it gives them a framework to stay in the church even if they've had really painful experiences from yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. source in the church, a leader, a member, a core member. And that's a lot. 
there's a lot of that going around and I've learned to hear those stories and sit with people. And those are complicated stories when you turn to your faith community to sort of be the healing place for you as you're dealing with couples, difficult stuff. And you, it just, it was the source of the difficult stuff. Yeah. If all the difficult stuff was happening and you could turn to this one balm of Gilead to be healed, which is often what we're able to do. But if that becomes not a safe place for you, You've had to work hard and receive a lot of support from your heavenly parents and the Savior and the atonement to heal you, and it's given you the ability to stay in Mm. and be a voice of support. I can't remember if I mentioned the right junior high. Now that I'm thinking back, I can't remember if I said Bonneville or Hillside. You said Bonneville. I didn't go to Bonneville. Our kids (laughs) went to Bonneville. I went to Hillside Junior High, so just to set the record straight, I went to, it doesn't matter, I went to Indian Hills, I'm sure of that. I went to Hillside Junior High. And I went to Highland High School, and things gradually got better for me, especially in the high school level. Hmm. Um, I love the way you just talk about how porn use came into your life, and I like the word use. Um, and that's a softer language to describe it. Um, what? And I know I've shared this, listeners, if you've heard this story before, but I, I the therapist that I went to as a YSA bishop taught me the iceberg principle. It was the very best ministering principle anybody's ever taught me is often what I'm seeing as a YSA bishop, what they're talking about is not what I should really be taught. It's the bottom of the iceberg to help me understand. So if I'm thinking back to you, if you were 16 or 17 and opened up to your bishop about porn use, and and it would take a lot of discipline for a bishop to say, okay, I want to know the big story here. I don't want to just talk about porn. I don't want to give you seven steps to end porn. Mm-hmm. There may be something bigger going That's on true. here that is a a chance for me hmm. as your priesthood leader, as you vulnerably opened up about porn use, to actually understand the bigger picture here and truly lift your burden and truly help you versus yeah. potentially create a lot of shame for you, mm-hmm. how I handle this vulnerable Drew and I both um, are teaching that porn's a sin. No one's <laughs> de-sinning porn. Yes. Um, but, you know, I just admire you the way you're talking about that in a way that destigmatize it without sort of making it okay. Yeah. And I think that's, I really think Satan's greatest tool with porn is the shame and the self-loathing and the isolation and the lack of authentic connection it can create. Mm-hmm. And do you, so I'd love you to talk more about that. Sure. I know that's part of your book. For those that need hope to solve porn. Yeah. I mean, I used to, you know, have the same philosophy towards porn that a lot of people do is like you you don't talk about it, you don't bring it into the open because that somehow, you know, applauds what it does or that somehow makes it so that more people want to view it if you talk about it out loud. But in in in, you know, in the reality of it is when you're vulnerable with pornography and vulnerable vulnerable about why you viewed it and um, what you learned from it, you open up the path for so many other people to heal from it as well. Because whether we want to recognize it or not, our kids are being exposed to it. Um, you know, I think the, the age is like nine years and younger now is the first exposure to pornography, whether deliberately or through, you know, external circumstances. And you're right. I talk about use because I used to say addicted and I've learned that there's a very strong difference between habitual use of pornography and addiction. When you're addicted to pornography, you can't function properly as a human being. You can't, you can't do school. You can't do work. Your relationships are falling apart. Um, you're, consumed by it. It's not just something that you kind of use as a buffer. It's something that is all consuming in your life. For those that are just trying to escape a negative emotion like anger, sadness, or loneliness, or fatigue, and they turn to pornography, that's habitual use because you've trained your brain to habitually desire pornography when you're feeling a negative emotion. And instead of feeling that negative emotion, you want to just cover it up which helps for the time being, but doesn't solve the problem at all. And so um, I mentioned this to you off air, but I, I do personal coaching now. And one of the things that I help coach people on is solving their pornography use. Good. Um, you know, especially junior high, high school students. And 
um, but really anyone of any age. And the first thing I try to help them understand is don't say that you're addicted. Say that, you know, you have this challenge with pornography and that you're going to be able to solve it through retraining your brain. Because if we can retrain our brain to, you know, overcome another negative habit, then we can retrain our brain to overcome pornography use. And even though it's, it's shamed in our culture at times, um, I'm here to tell you that I don't judge you. I don't look at you any differently. Um, both you know and I know that it's a sin and we're not going to, you know, dance around that. But at the end of the day, we're going to focus on, you know, what your triggers are and how we can retrain your brain to overcome those triggers when you feel tempted. How do people contact you if they want your help? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook, send me a Facebook message or Instagram. Um, Mr. Drew B. Young is my username. You can send me a message there and I'll do my best to help you. And we'll link to um, Drew's Facebook and Instagram in the podcast description so you can scroll down the podcast description and find it. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Um, Tell our listeners the name of your book again, um, yeah. just so anybody and anybody and everybody can find it. <laughs> Stand guard at the door of your mind. So it's uh, to help you out whenever you're when you're facing challenges that have to do with any mindset. So tell our listeners how old you are. Twenty five. You know, I, I tease Drew about his age because I just recognize his life experiences at 25 has stretched him to be in a position where he's uniquely qualified to help people. Now, the quote I read at the beginning of the podcast that I botched, I'm going to read again because I've got it in front of me and my brain's working a little bit better. You've heard it a lot and a lot of people actually message me and want a reference to this quote. But it's by Henry Norn, a Catholic priest in the book Wounded Healer. And my friend Jake Watts is the first one that got me on this. So thanks, Jake. Norwin wrote, quote, that a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's been there, someone who's never been there, end quote. And so I'm grateful for Drew Young, who, through no fault of his home of his own, got in some really difficult deserts, really because of the choices of others. And he is now um, giving hope to people that are in those deserts. And hopefully, listeners, um, we are doing a better job of not creating deserts for other people that they don't need to be created. No one should. No one's earth plan, I believe, is to be a victim of bullying. That is not in the plan. Um, that is part of the plan, I guess, when it comes to people's choices. But I like what Drew said, that he'd never been in a class where we talked about not bullying. And I think that's something from an educational perspective as parents and local leaders, we should start teaching at a pretty young age. And when we say, you know, these talks, this is love thy neighbor as thyself, I think then we can go and say, okay, here's Here's how we address not bullying and how mm -hmm. Christ would treat people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got a great life ahead of you healing other people. It's part of your life ministry. And Thank you. I think as a father and a husband and a, a grandfather in 20 plus years, this will be continued part of your life ministry and will become a legacy in your family and create a culture that some of, I think, of your paydays will see how your work has blessed the lives of your kids and people around you and even grandkids and um, really admire you for, we didn't talk much about suicide. We've talked about that, but um, yeah. I'm glad you didn't choose suicide. I recognize that that was a logical option facing you and mm -hmm. with the difficult things. And um, in our ward training today, um, a social, a clinical worker, talked about, and I just remind this to our listeners, and Drew would share the same thing, I think, is just if you are, it's okay to ask somebody if they're suicidal. Even if they say no, it, mm -hmm. it creates a feeling that you're a safe person for them. It mm -hmm. doesn't introduce the idea in their mind. They don't suddenly become suicidal if we talk about that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's okay to create a family culture where that word suicide is part of the family culture. Um mm -hmm. Because if you've got a kid that's suicidal, they need to know that you as parents are safe to talk about that because you're talking about that in your home or a local leader or a friend. Absolutely. So normalize talking about suicide to me 
helps people not die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you need to go one step further. Could you hurt yourself? Because I think that means that you might just be able to tell them, yeah, I could hurt myself. But if you ask somebody if they're suicidal and then even say, okay, do you have a plan? Tell Mm -hmm. me your plan. I think that creates a feeling that you're, you can go all the way where they need someone to go and have the kind of conversation they really want to have, but just don't know who to have that with and if you're a safe person. So I don't know if you want to add it to that. <laughs> no, Drew. that's you. Yeah, you said that so beautifully. Um, both you and I are are here for people whenever they may need a safe place to go. And and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had to be able to help people now in a more intimate, compassionate, empathetic setting. So thank you for the platform, my friend. And if you just want to feel uplifted in life, go be on Drew's Facebook, be on his Instagram. It's just, you know, Elder Renlund talks about stone throwers and stone catchers, and Drew's Mm. a stone catcher. And if you want (laughs) to reduce divisiveness in your life and feel hope, please um, connect with Drew and the great work he's doing. So this is Drew Young and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, Love.